Stacy and I are using these weeks in Lent to preach from the, the parable that is the third parable in Luke 15. Jesus first tells a parable about a lost sheep and then a lost coin. Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands." So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has fit, killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life, was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Jesus once told a parable about a family. The parable began with a very simple, a man had two sons. Nothing extraordinary or particularly interesting about that. A simple story about an ordinary family, children behaving like children, parents behaving like all the parenting books say you should behave. Yet this parable beats all the other parables Jesus told. It has been called Jesus' masterpiece, 
One scholar has said it is the most exquisite and penetrating of all stories of divine love and grace. It's amazing, if you think about it, that such a familiar, simple, plain story could have such a profound effect. But then we have the issue of its title. This parable did not start out originally with Jesus saying, gather round, now I'm going to tell you the parable of the prodigal son. I have nothing against titles, it's just they can suffocate the truth. Titles mislead us to thinking that naming a thing tells us everything about that thing. Titles tend to domesticate and tame good stories until they become easy and mundane and impotent. Titles can make us lazy. But a title can never cage a parable of Jesus. Parables are parables precisely because they cannot be managed or manipulated. Australian poet Cameron Simmons has written a poem that is the definition of a parable. It goes like this. This poem is untitled. This poem has no title. This poem wants no title. This poem rebels against any appropriate, feasible, and or logical title that you may happen to think of. The first line of this poem is not to be supplemented as its title. It's not even to be referred to as the poem that is untitled, or that untitled poem, or untitled. It is to have no name, no heading, no abbreviated term or reference of any type. And this poem upholds its God-given right to remain untitled. If it is ever to be referred to, it is to be recited in its entirety and read with all sincerity. This poem is untitled, it is never to be titled, it shall never have a title. This poem also reserves the right to peter out. Footnote, this poem is diminished, not quite finished. (laughs) Jesus told a parable about a family, and it was a parable without a title. But tradition assigned it the parable of the prodigal son, which is stuck even though it's not really accurate. The title shifts the focus away from the whole family and puts the spotlight on one member as if the whole parable is just about that one family member. But wait, this is a parable of Jesus, not some Hollywood production where there can only be one star taking up top billing and everybody else in a supporting role. Real families don't work that way, we know that. Families are way more complex than titles. In the story, the younger son decides to leave. We're not told why he leaves. We're left to speculate. Some may speculate that the younger son had an adventurous spirit. Maya Angelou has written that he was seeking the kind of company he could not get at home. So just as simple as that, he left. Others may think it was because of sibling rivalry. That makes some sense. Others who read closely and note that the parable has no mother, no sisters, no daughter. In other words, this is a household without women, and the macho intensity of the parable family is probably so great anyone would want to get out after a while. Whatever you think, the parable doesn't say why he left. You only know that he left. With no plans to come back, he packed everything, he closed everything down, he even had a talk with his father where he says, if there's anything you are planning on giving me when you died, give it to me now because you are as good as dead to me. 
he was financially equipped to leave the familiar and venture into the unknown. But let's not judge the younger too harshly. He crosses borders and enters Gentile territory where folks are different. They have pig farms. They have pork chops on the menu. Since we live in a world today where millions upon millions upon millions live in regions fear, fearful for their lives, no human rights, no opportunity for freedom or dignity, always under somebody else's control, and as a consequence, they must leave their home, their ties, their kin, their family in search of just a life to live. Let's not judge the younger son too harshly. Let us wish him well as he goes off seeking a new life. Yes, Jesus once told a parable about a family. The parable could just as easily have begun a woman had two sons or parents had two children because the traditional title makes misleading assumptions that the prodigal son story is the only legitimate history being recounted here. That the title overrides all the other stories and histories and descriptions. In our world today, we see how this pans out so that the story of just one group of people or one constituency or one race or one nation or one faith or one gender is offered up as the only one true story that matters. But that's not the only way the title misleads. Which of these is prodigal? I know you've probably heard this story a hundred times, but pretend you have it. Pretend you're hearing it for the first time. Which one of these is prodigal? Some might say the younger son. Some might say, no, it was the elder son. Some of you might say, no, it's both of them. Settle as it is in the neighborhood of lost and found in Luke 15, lost and found sheep, lost and found coin, it's easy to assume that prodigal means lost. It would be easy to think that lost sheep was a prodigal sheep, that a lost coin was a prodigal coin. Webster's Dictionary throws us a curve. Prodigal has nothing to do with lost and found. Prodigal is not even, in some situations, a bad thing to be at all. Webster says prodigal means extravagant, reckless, squandering, wasteful. Webster's also says prodigal means abundant, bounteous, lavish. Out of prodigal comes prodigious. Webster says the people who are not prodigal are miserly, stingy, mean, and tight-fisted. There's no doubt that when prodigal is inward-looking, it is sinful in its self-indulgence and greed and selfishness. However, when prodigal is practiced on another, on someone outside of us, prodigal is radical in its generosity. Prodigal is reckless in its welcome, such as when the returning son is met by a father who drops whatever he was doing and runs across the public square. That's prodigal. Prodigal is overwhelming in its forgiveness, such as when a raggedy, 
battered, lived with swine looking daughter is grasped and rocked in the loving arms of a mother upon her return, who laughing and crying can only say again, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That's prodigal. Prodigal means excessive, too much, extravagant, overflowing, unconstrained. Prodigal is reckless in dishing out extravagant portions of love. Prodigal is doling out grace in lavish servings. Behold the startling picture laid before us. Nothing but the finest robe to put on his bruised and battered body. Nothing but the best ring to put on his broken finger. The best shoes for callous feet. Let's grill the fatted calf because there is no better day we were waiting for than this. And now a toast, a prodigal, passionate toast. Raise your glass. Here's the resurrection. Vicki Matson of Vanderbilt Divinity School has written, when the table is filled to overflowing, when kindness abounds, when love begets more love and generosity gives birth to forgiveness, Those kind of feasts can only come from God, who is amazing, open-hearted, extravagant, and beyond our comprehension. Jesus once told a parable about a family, a simple story about a man who had two children, and Jesus did not label the parable, but simply told the story and let the chips fall where they may. Traditions and cultures, presbyteries and general assemblies, careful control and long-range plans do not particularly like chips flying all around in an unordered way. The structures of our life like order and control. So tradition tried to help Jesus some and give this parable a neat, smooth, highly packaged, yet very dangerous name, the parable of the prodigal son. While the parable is wonderfully complicated, like the family that is the church, the labeling oversimplifies the family. The label bows to one constituency alone at the expense of all the others and at the expense of the whole. The label insists on something clear and coherent and controlled at the expense of so many who are dismissed today, so many in our world who are silenced today, so many who are devalued in our world today. But with Jesus, there are no labels. The whole New Testament doesn't have Jesus give a label once. With Jesus, there are no constituencies. With Jesus, one size never fits all. And stories about only two children can easily be misquoted and miscast to mislead us into the deadly dichotomy of elder versus younger. Next thing we know, such dichotomy bleeds over into us versus them, rich versus poor, liberal versus conservative, black versus white, the rest versus the West. Labels, labels, labels. The truth of the matter is, life is never neatly packaged into either-or boxes. People, like parables, are impossible to label or categorize or shelve. Not even nations are politically homogeneous. Not even churches, everyone thinks the same. 
Not even families have members who are entirely identical or entirely different. Out there in our world, there are real histories and realities quite unlike our own. In this room right now, there are histories and realities quite unlike our own. How that complicates life together as a church. Those who are just starting out in faith and those who have made their camp with God for decades. Those who hear God clearly and those who mostly think God must be playing some joke on them. This parable is not about this child or that child. This parable is all about interrelatedness, how we are all connected in God's world, ready or not. My friend Grace Amathew is a New Testament scholar. She's a Methodist pastor in the Chicago area, and she tells a story from her native Kenya, a story about a rat who was living in the walls of a farmer's house. One day, as the rat was going about its ratty business, it peered through a hole in the wall and saw how the farmer and his wife were opening a package. The rat watched carefully to see what was in that package. The rat could hardly believe the rat's eyes when the farmer and his wife produced out of the package a rat trap. In a panic, the rat called the council of all the farm animals into into meeting and in a trembling voice told them, that the, father, the farmer had bought a rat trap. Over and over again, he repeated, there's a rat trap in the house. The cow listened. The goat and the chicken listened. Chicken scratched around a bit and finally said, well, brother rat, I'm standing here thinking to myself, rat trap in the house, so what? I have never heard of a chicken getting caught in a rat trap. I don't see this has anything to do with me. It's none of my business. And with that, the chicken left. The goat, listening the whole time, nodded at the chicken's words, but offered understanding and pity, saying, Brother Wright, Brother Rat, you, you take care now. I'll be praying for you. And, I'll, and always remember, God loves you. You take care now. And the goat left. The cow had been listening to all this and chewed cud for a long while, thinking hard. And finally, the cow said, it's like, I'm confused. Why are we here? It's like I'm thinking, you know, cows and rats. I'm too big to fit into that trap. And I figure none of this is for me. And the cow left. Well, the same night, late, late at night, pop, went the rat trap. And suddenly there was a scream from the farmer's house. Pandemonium breaks out. A snake had crawled into the rat trap. And the farmer's wife had reached over and the snake had bitten her. Farmer rushes wife to hospital. This is a sad, sad story. The farmer's wife died. Farmer came home in shock. And you know how it is when you're in shock, what you really need is some fresh chicken soup? The following day, neighbors and relatives gathered to comfort him, and so the farmer gave permission for the goat to be slaughtered to feed everybody. Next day was the funeral, and the whole village came. Well, how are you going to feed a whole village except with a lot of beef stew? All because of a rat trap. 
Friends, if you hear of rat traps in the house, please do not pause to wonder whether it has anything to do with you or not. The Holocaust, rat trap in the house. Jewish cemeteries being vandalized today and Jewish community centers being threatened, rat trap in our house. Three generations of a Middle Eastern family separated by what is labeled a security barrier, rat trap in the house. War and famine and cholera in South Sudan, rat trap in the house. Despair and violence on the south side of Chicago, rat trap in our house. Homeless on the streets of Austin, rat trap. Quiet addiction, eroding life next door to you, rat trap. Depression, abuse, neglect, loneliness within our reach, rat trap, rat trap, rat trap, rat trap. So Jesus once told a story. It was a story about us, God's family. A parable without labels or titles, without an obvious sign telling us how we're supposed to read the story. Whatever our background, whatever our tastes and affiliations, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God and told a story of unbounded love and generosity, a story of reckless hospitality, extravagant in its grace, even in difficult, hard times. And then Jesus let the chips fall where they may. 